Welcome to Grace, everybody. It's good to see you this weekend, and welcome everybody watch online also. Thanks for being with us. Uh, my name's Jeff. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to connect with you a little bit and, uh, and say hi, so please do that after the service. Uh, we are finishing up a series this weekend called With or Without, and we're going to start another series uh, next weekend called We, and I'm excited about that, how God brings us together as a church. The Bible says he weaves together the church, each and every individual part of it. And so as we kind of start into, we call it our ministry year, it's almost like a school year. As we start into our ministry year, uh, I'm excited about what we are going to be involved with, very excited about what God, I believe, is calling us to. I actually think uh, the next nine months are going to be uh, very fun, very foundational, very historical here at, uh, at Grace Church. So really can't wait to get rolling into that. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it. So that conversation will start next weekend, and I uh, hope you can be a part of it. And uh, this weekend, as we finish up this series, With or Without, uh, the, the title kind of gives it away. That's literally what we're talking about, things that we have with us in life, things that we want to have out of our lives. What would we import? What would we export? And uh, we've been talking about this idea that what happens is we hit these points of frustration, is what I would call it, or points of pain. And when we hit a point of pain or frustration, we're motivated to change, and not just like a little bit, right? Not just like I should do some more burpees kind of a thing, not self-help or positive talk, but like in my soul, things that are beyond kind of our, our uh, ability just to be self-disciplined about it. But I need to be different. I need to think differently, be driven differently. This relationship has to change fundamentally. The marriage, my interaction with my mom and dad, my friendships, my interaction with God. And how do I do that? Usually what happens is there's some kind of cycle of pain or frustration where we kind of throw our hands up and say, enough's enough. Uh, this has to be different than what it's been. How do we go about the process of making those changes or inviting them to be with us in our lives. We said that the foundation of all of this is the Word of God, right? So one of the metaphors that the Bible uses about itself is that it's a mirror. And when I look at the mirror, what a mirror does, a mirror doesn't judge me or pass an opinion on me per se. A mirror just tells me the reality of my reflection. So in this metaphor, that's what the Bible's doing. The Bible's saying, yeah, you're actually, you may, you may think you're like this or talk like this, but you're actually like this. Or this might be your opinion about God or your preconceived ideas about God, but God is actually like this. He's just going to reflect the truth back to us. And the Bible says about itself that when I look in the mirror, I should not walk away and be unchanged by it. Instead, what I should do is look intently into the perfect law of truth and humbly receive it when it's planted into me. So if the Bible kind of corrects me or rebukes me, I allow that to happen. The Bible encourages me or redefines my view of myself, I allow that to happen. But I go to God's word and I, in essence, say, God, speak to me through your word and what you say is what's gonna define and direct my life. And that is the key to heart change, fundamental change. You know, not just, not just positive thinking or self-esteem stuff, uh, but deep down in the soul change. And so we talked about that the last few weeks. We, we said maybe the reason we're on these cycles and these merry-go-rounds is because of lies that we believed. Last week, we kind of furthered that conversation and said there's words that have wounded us. How do we receive 
courage or encouragement from God and from the people around us. And this series is, is kind of weighted in, in a special way where it really is one conversation broken into a bunch of parts. So if you've missed some of it, if you want to use the app or go to the website or get the podcast, it, it may be good for you to catch up if you want to. So get, get your phone, get a cup of coffee, get your Bible and my smooth, relaxing voice in your ear and it will just help you with all that kind of stuff and, and take advantage of that, all right? This weekend as we finish this up, I want to land on kind of the final piece of this conversation, and uh, this weekend is going to be probably a little ouchy. It's, it's a pretty big conversation, a deep conversation. It's going to be an intrusive conversation, and it's a question that, that we need to ask ourselves, and we, we, we need to ask ourselves this. If I'm caught in these cycles if I am back on this habit, if, this, if there's this barrier between me and God, if there's barriers between me and the people that I love, could those things be there and be rooted because I have secret sin in my life that I harbor, is the Bible word for it, I invite it in, I keep it, I rationalize it, I justify it, I work around it, and I keep it a secret. And could that secret be derailing my life kind of on down the line? What do I do with that sin and how does it affect me? So we're going to talk about this this weekend, all right? And this is an important conversation. It's kind of critical uh, to who we are with Christ and then even who we are with each other. What is sin? I just wanted to put down a definition so that we could be on the same page with it. Uh, sin is this. Sin is any action, motive, or mindset that is not yielded to God's definition or direction. It's any action, motive, or mindset that's not yielded to God's definition or God's direction. So anything the Bible says I should do that I don't do, that's a sin. Anything the Bible says that I should not do that I do do, that's a sin. When I'm motivated in an unchristlike way, when I'm self-righteous or I'm selfish or I'm greedy, those kind of things are sins, or I have a mindset <clears throat> that is not yielded to God's definition and direction, right? So I look and say, I know what the Bible says, I just don't care. I'm going to believe my own truth. I have my own truth. God's truth is not the final truth or the final authority. My opinion, my truth, my experience is the final authority. I have a mindset. Another way to say that is affection. I love something that God would say, don't love, or it's harmful for me to love. So any mindset, action, or motive that is not yielded to God's definition and direction. Now, that's kind of sin in general, and our conversation this weekend is going to be kind of narrowed even a step further to what I just kind of call it willful sin. The Bible would call it a rebellion. So this is where I look and I say, I know these things about the Bible. I know that this aspect of my life is a sin, right? I'm not confused. I'm not uninformed. I'm not like really, really new to following Jesus and I just didn't know. But I know it's a sin and I choose to do it anyways. I welcome it into my life and I hide it. I, I, I hide it from other people around me. I kind of lie to myself about it, but it's a willful sin, a secret sin, 
And the Bible would say that is destructive. It's going to hurt you. It's going to harm you. But I'm welcoming it and I'm keeping it in my life, right? So is there a secret sin that is driving kind of this merry-go-round of frustration that I'm on? And if I dealt with it, could I be set free from it? About uh, a few years ago, actually it was 20 years ago, but when you get as old as I am, it all kind of, you kind of condense it. So uh, 20 years ago, I was sitting in my office, I got a phone call one day, and it was a pastor, an associate pastor of another church. And he called me up, he said, I got to talk to you. He said, uh, he said, I think my pastor's having an affair. He won't talk to us, he won't talk to his elders can you go talk to him? And my first thought was, why did you call me? <laughs> like, how did I get sucked into this, right? And he's like, and, and he said, I, we think that if you talk to him or you call him, he will at least sit down with you. I said, all right. And so he started to fill me in. Like, here's the suspicions. Here's what's happening. This is what they're nervous about. Can you go talk to this pastor? So we believe as Christians biblically, especially as a pastor, that as an elder, a spiritual elder of the church, that when something like that comes across our path, we, we need to go do something about it. We need to address it. So I kind of reluctantly agreed to go talk to this pastor. So I called the guy up and I drove up and I met with him. And I sat down with him. I said, hey, bro, listen, I got this phone call. Actually, I, after that one, I got two more with these same suspicions. I said, I got these phone calls. This is what people are telling me. I don't know whether what to do. Like, is it happening? Should I defend you? What's going on? Can you fill me in on what's going on? And so he started to fill me in, and he immediately said, this is, this, Jeff, I'm innocent. I'm not having a, an affair with this other woman. Uh, that's not going on. It's all a bunch of lies. You have to understand that, that people are lying about me. Okay, well, what about your associate pastors that called me and met with me? And what about your elders who have all resigned over this? Oh, Jeff, you don't understand. They're trying to undermine me. They, they want control of the church, and it's a power play, and they're trying to undermine me, and, and you just have to understand they're, they're out to get me. Okay, well, what about this stuff about your wife? And she has said this and talked to this person, and that's come to me as well. You don't understand, Jeff. My wife's crazy. I live with the craziest human being that's ever been created on planet Earth, and, and I, you don't understand how difficult my marriage has been and how insane my wife is. Okay, well, what about all these people who have left your church because they're saying that this has happened? You don't understand, Jeff, the devil is attacking me. Do you know about spiritual warfare? Dr. Bogue, have you ever read about that? Yeah, I have once or twice. I know a thing or two about it. Um, I, what, what's going on? Oh, the devil's getting me. The devil is oppressing me. He's attacking the church. He's driving a wedge between us and the church. So I sat and listened to him for about three and a half hours. Uh, and he told me that all of this was nonsense. And at the end of about three and a half hours, I'm kind of sitting there, there's kind of this awkward silence. And he, he said, what are you thinking? And I looked up and I looked him right in the eye and I said, I think you're lying. He said, are you calling me a liar? I said, yes, you're lying. You're a liar. That's what lying is, right? 
I'm Dr. Bogue, so I, <laughs> right? And, and I, said, you're, I said, listen, man, I said, either you are the most oppressed, lied about person on planet Earth whose wife is insane and you're number one on the devil's hit list and everybody is out to get you or you're lying and I don't believe you, right? And he looked at me and he said, you need to leave my office. He didn't say it quite that politely, but I got the hit. And so I left his office. And after that confrontation, what happened next was some of the most insane things I've ever been a part of in my whole life. Absolute insanity. He, he started to attack me and our church, and I was out to get him now. He threatened our family. I actually had to call Heidi and say, don't let the kids play in the front yard. Like, I, if you see a strange car, you know, I, I, it's, in, it's crazy what started going on. The, his family exploded. His wife, his children, the family of the woman that he was accused of having an affair with, that family exploded. One of her children took their life in the middle of this whole thing. The church exploded. 60-year-old church exploded. The name of Jesus is just drug through the mud. Division happened in the body of Christ. There's pastors on Jeff's side and pastors on his side. Now, he caused division in the church, right? And all of it blew up. By the time the explosion was done, thousands of people are caught up in this mess, right? About three months after the confrontation, I get a phone call from him, pick up the phone, hey, Jeff, it's so-and-so. My first thought was, how did you get those number? <laughs> Security, right, kind of thing. And, and he said, hey, he goes, I need you to know that when you said this, 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 and this, it's all true. Everything is true. What my wife said, what the pastor said, what the elder said, what the other woman said, everything is true. Will you forgive me for lying to you? So I was kind of in stunned silence, and I, I thought, well, I think I'm like contractually obligated to forgive people. And so I, I was like, I forgive you. And I said, I said, I don't even know what to say, man. What, what, you, have, what you have put us through, my family, and in yours and hers, and I, I don't even know what to say. Yes, I forgive you. Hung up the phone, right? Now, I'm telling you that story, and that's a true story, by the way. I'm telling you that story because it's dramatic. It, it really did happen that way, and it's dramatic. It's a headline. It's a movie of the week. It's an HBO special, right? It's a real story. And this is what happens. When we hear a story like that, we think, man, that guy. Can you believe that guy? Man, can you believe what he did? Man, man, can you? I can't believe he did that with his life. He's a spiritual leader. He's a husband. He's a father. He, he, he attacked Jeff Bogue. I just can't believe that whole thing happened. And we hear that story and we think this way. That, 
that's not me, that's that guy. And it doesn't register with us that if we're harboring secret sin and our sin erupted publicly, that that same level of destruction would happen to the people that we love. You may or may not make the news like this one did. But when it's your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or your friends or your church, the same bomb is gonna explode in the same way and it's gonna destroy lives equally. And God would look and say, sin does that. All sin does is kill, steal, destroy. And you see headline sin, and we can detach and say, well, look what happened to them. And we, while we're saying that, we can harbor or hide the exact same stuff in our lives. And when that bomb goes off, it will steal, kill, and destroy you and the people that you love in the exact same ways. And we'll, we see it in other people and hide it in our own lives. And the cancer of sin will metastasize and it will kill you and it will destroy. It doesn't just happen to somebody else. It happens to us. Great book, a guy named Craig Crochelle wrote it. It's called Soul Detox, Soul Detox. And in his book, he wrote this. He said, sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's hurtful. Great quote. God isn't looking at us and saying, don't you sin or I'm gonna spank you for it. It's not what he's doing. He's looking at you and saying, there is no upside to sin. It's never gonna play out well. There's no way to like land the sin plane without a, a fireball. And you see it happen to other people and you're kind of nuts if you think it's not gonna happen to you. And I forbid these things, God would say, I forbid them, not because I'm controlling your life, I'm trying to protect you you are going to get hurt. That grenade is going to go off and that shrapnel is going to sink into you and sink into everybody that you love. And when you hide it, welcome it, keep it a secret, it is not going to stay that way forever. In fact, God tells us this in the book of Numbers 32, verse 23. He told his people, but if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Sin is going to be exposed. It, it does not stay in the dark forever. And by the way, when sin is exposed, it's God who exposes it, not the devil. When your sin comes to light, the devil didn't attack you. God loved you. Because God will expose our sin because he knows the destructive power of it. God is going to reveal the cancer of sin before it destroys your life. And he looks at his people, in this case Israel, and you can broaden this principle to the whole church. And he says, you got to know it's going to find you out. You're probably going to get caught this side of heaven. And you're most assuredly going to be caught when you stand in judgment before me. 
it always surfaces. I don't know one person that's ever gotten away with an affair. You do for a while, but it comes out. I don't know one person that's ever gotten away with embezzling money. You do it for a while, but it comes out. I don't know one person who's ever lived a duplicitous lie and nobody ever knew. It always surfaces. And if you are the exception to the rule, God says, it's gonna surface when you look me in the eye because I know everything. Be sure that your sin will find you out. It's going to catch you. It's going to blow up. And it's going to leave you and everybody that you love destroyed when it does. The most dramatic story you can hear is actually your story. And it's going to wound, kill, destroy just like that. Now, when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about it in two veins. One vein is if you're caught in sin. And when the Bible talks about you being caught in sin, it always talks about being caught in sin in a disciplinary vein. That when I'm caught in sin, it's God disciplining us. He's revealing it. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves as his own children. He loves us enough to bring discipline into our lives. So when I'm caught in sin, my relationship with God is a disciplinary relationship. And the Bible continues that thought and said, that's actually actually your relationship with the church too. There is discipline in which the church will bring upon members of the church. Matthew 18, these are actually Jesus's words. He says, if you see a brother or sister caught in sin, you go to them and you confront them. If they yield, you've won a friend over. If they don't, take another friend with you and both of you confront them. If they don't yield then, then bring it to the church and the church confronts them. And if they won't yield to the church, you kick them out of the church. You expel them, not as an act of vengeance, but as an act of love. I'm gonna let you have a taste of what it's like to be cut off from the people of God because if you don't turn from your sin, you're gonna be cut off from God. So God is a warning, says cut them off from the church so they can have a little bit of understanding what it's gonna be like to be cut off from me forever. And it's a disciplinary track if you're caught in sin. Now, here's the wonder of it. There's an alternative God lays out to being caught. And the alternative to being caught is to confess. And God would look specifically at those who are followers of him and say, you don't have to be caught in your sin. You can confess your sin. And if you confess your sin, your interaction with God and with the people of God changes. This is what James says in James chapter five. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God says, if I have to discipline you, it's gonna hurt. Now, I'm doing it because I love you. I'm not out to get you. If I'm out to get you, I just zap you. I'm doing it because I love you. I'm trying to restore you, but it's a painful, difficult process that gives you a foreshadowing of what's gonna happen in your relationship with me eternally if you don't yield your heart. But if you don't wanna go through that process, you can confess your sin, and the outcome of that confession is healing. I can heal you, I can rescue you from this sin. When you confess your sin to God, he becomes an ally in your restoration or in your healing. My relationship changes with God. And by the way, my relationship also changes with the church. We'll see here in a minute. 
God would look at us and say, you don't have to go through that. If you yourself, these are Paul's words, if you expose the fruitless deeds of darkness to the light, if you bring it out, it changes everything. And you can avoid all the shrapnel. Imagine how the story I told you would have played out if when I sat down with the man and said, you're having an affair, you're a liar, if he looked at me and said, you're right. I confess it. Imagine the pain that it would have saved his family, the pain that it would have saved the church, the pain that it would have saved the family of the woman involved, the pain that it would have saved, the way that the name of Jesus would not have been drugged through the mud that the church would still exist that he was pastoring. Imagine how that story changes when he confesses. See? And God would look at us and say, we could preempt this whole thing. And there is healing, that's the promise of it, but that healing is found in you exposing your own sin, you confessing it, and altering how I interact with you and the people of God interact with you as well. What happens when we confess sin? What, what is God trying to give to us? Because it's not being caught. It's an option. It's an act of love. How does God respond to us when we confess our sin? Well, the Bible says several things. And first of all, the Bible says this. When I confess my sin, I alter my relationship with God. And instead of being an object of God's wrath and discipline, I become an object of the grace of God. I'm able to receive God's grace. He becomes an ally as opposed to someone who is opposing me in my sin. James 4 says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Fascinating passage. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word resist is a really interesting word. So we translate the English Bible from the Greek language. So sometimes when you shove the words back into Greek, you get different insights on it. And when you take that word resist and you push it back into Greek, the original meaning of that word is God, God actively opposes. God actively opposes the proud, but he gives grace, undeserved or unmerited favor to the humble. When I willfully invite sin in my life and I keep it a secret and people think I'm the sharp guy when really I'm on porn most of the time. People think I'm this really sweet girl, but really I'm, I'm like gossip champ. People think I'm really generous, but really I'm not even tithing. People think I really care about them, but they don't even realize I'm using them. When I harbor sin in my life, what I'm doing is I'm looking at God and I'm saying, I will not do what you've called me to do. I know what the Bible says. I know what truth is. I understand how you want me to interact with this. I am not doing it. And that is the classic definition of pride. I will live independently from what you say. And James says, be careful, because when you do that, God will actively oppose you in your pride. The Bible says something about this. Uh, for instance, husbands, 
The Bible says that if I refuse to live with my wife in an understanding way, I don't care what she thinks. She's, it's her problem. She's crazy. I'm sick of it. If I refuse to live with my wife in an understanding way, the Bible says God will not hear your prayers. I've been praying for a job for three months. Why can't I get one? I've been praying that this word, why, why, God, does God not hear me? I don't know, are you bitter? Are you angry? Do you have unexpressed frustration? The, the Bible says of children, children are to honor their mother and father. And when you are the good, neat, athletic, straight A teenager, but when you're with your girlfriend or boyfriend or when you're with or when you're away or when they went, see, this is actually what your life is like. I don't know. Why won't God let me into the college I want to be in? I feel like I'm going to have to live at home forever. See? God actively opposes. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you, and he knows that breaking the cycle of sin in your life is way more important than you getting what you want. Because if the cycle of sin, if the cell of sin is left, it will metastasize and it will kill you. But the opposite is true. When we confess, that's humility. Humility is me laying aside my perceived rights. I think I have the right to my own opinion. You know what? I surrender it. I think I have the right to do what I want. You know what? I decide not to. When I confess and I humble myself, what God gives me is grace. He becomes an ally in my life as I seek to overcome sin. He gives me victory. He gives me strength. He gives me courage. He gives me help. And instead of standing in opposition to God, I stand along beside God as he helps me live the life that he's caused me to live. You know what happens a lot of times, guys? I've become convinced of this. I really believe that what happens when we hide sin and we resist God in these ways, I really believe what happens is we treat God like another person. And so we convince ourselves that we can do to God what we do to other people. I, I've been fooling my wife for 25 years. I can fool God for 25 years. I've been having this attitude toward my husband. And he doesn't even know about it. I can, God doesn't even know about it. I've been lying to my friends. I've been rebelling against my parents. They don't even know I'm doing it. I'm getting away with it. I've been cutting corners at work. I've been changing the lines on my tax reform. Nobody ever turned me in. And we get in our mind that we can deceive God the way that we can deceive people. And therefore, there is no consequences to our sin. And God would look and say, I'm actually like omniscient and omnipresent. I'm everywhere and I know everything. And I know what's going on with you. Years ago, when our kids were little, we had a scandal in the Bogue house, a scandal at, Bogue, at the Bogue compound. And the scandal was that somebody stole candy. Somebody stole candy. And, and the Justice League members of our family came to bear on this. A right has been done. And a wrong has occurred and a right must happen and justice must occur. So in order to get justice to occur, an investigation ensued. And we started accusing each other of stealing candy. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And you did it, you did it. And somebody stole the candy. And I know that the candy was stolen. So Heidi intervened. 
And when Heidi intervened, she used the wisdom of being a mother of six children. Only a mother of six children would think of this. And she stopped and she said, everybody stop it. I want to see everybody's teeth. She goes, I want you to show me your teeth because there will be candy residue on the teeth. So we all had to line up. And I was like, oh, first, ah, you're innocent, right? And she went all the way through the children. And finally, the one child came up. And she goes, show me your teeth. He goes, like that. She goes, open up. And he opened up, and she saw it. She saw the Mentos. Plus, he had minty fresh breath. (laughs) And she saw it on his teeth. And she goes, go see your father. And so I went, and I said, you show me your teeth. He showed me his teeth, and I, too, saw the the Mentos and the minty fresh breath. And I was like, you stole the candy. And he looked at me. He goes, no, I didn't. I said, you stole the candy. No, I didn't. I said, you're lying. No, I'm not. I'm lying. I'm not lying. I said, you stole it. And he said, I didn't. I said, if you don't tell me the truth, you're going to get a spanking. I didn't do it. I said, go get the rod. So he went and got the rod. The rod was a commercial paint stick. It's a great little paddle, and they're free, by the way. And so he, he went and got the rod, and he brought me the rod. He said, you tell me the truth, you're going to get a spanking. I didn't do it. Smack on the leg, crying. I didn't do it. I said, tell me the truth. You're lying. No, I didn't. Smack on the leg, crying. Tell me the truth. Smack on the leg, crying. And he finally goes, I did it. I did it. I ate the candy, he says, right? So then he... He goes to Heidi, and suddenly she shifts to the good cop. She's like, come here for love and affection. Your father is evil. And so he crawled into her lap. She's hugging on him, and he's crying. And she goes, honey, she goes, why didn't you tell daddy the truth? I don't know. She goes, honey, if you would have told daddy the truth, he wouldn't have spanked you. And he paused. He goes, nobody told me that, right? Now listen, your father is telling you that. I can see your teeth. Your sin is going to find you out. You're not getting away with anything. And I'm telling, I love you, I'm telling you there's consequences. I'm telling you it's going to catch up with you. I'm telling you, if you are the one person on the planet that gets away with it your whole life, you're going to stand before me and I saw it all. You're not deceiving me. And you don't have to be caught. You could confess and you change your relationship with me and you change your relationship with the church. This is what the Bible says, that when I confess, what I'm able to do is embrace restoration. That the church is not in the position of discipline, it's in a position of restoration. Paul says this, Galatians chapter 6, brothers and sisters, if someone, is, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The Bible says this, that if you're caught in a sin, those of us who are mature spiritually or grounded in God's Word our position with you is not a position of rejection or discipline. It's a position of restoration. And that's important because it's not the normal history of the church. You come into the church, hey, I, I got I to tell you something. I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm not married. Get out of the church. The sexually immoral don't go to heaven. You've been sexually, get out of the church. 
Hey, I gotta tell you something. I've been sober for three years and I relapsed. Get out of the church. The drunkards, they don't go to heaven. You get out of this church. Hey, I tell you something. You know, I, I, I cheated at work and I got caught. I got fired. Get out of the church. The greedy, you're greedy. Get out of the church. The scripture would look and say, no, 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 no. If someone confesses their sin, you who are filled with the Spirit, you come along beside them and give them grace like God does those who confess their sin to him. And you begin a process of restoration. You don't do a process of excommunication, but a process of restoration. The sin has been committed. The confession has been made. How do we help you restore your relationship with God and your relationship with the people that are involved in the process of your sin? Paul goes on, and what he says next is fascinating. He gives a warning he says, brothers and sisters, someone that is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But then he warns, he says, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. It's fascinating. You who are spiritual, you dive in and you help this person reestablish your relationship with God and with each other. But be careful when you do that or you yourself will be tempted. This is the problem, Ready? When I deal with your sin, I learn how to sin. When I deal with your sin, I learn how to sin. Jeff, I gotta tell you, man, I, I know you thought all these things about me, but I've, I've really been, I've been trapped in porn. I'm just like Mr. Porn, Mrs. Porn. I'm, I'm like on pornography all the time. What? That's crazy, man. What about the filters and the accountability? Well, if you do this, this, and this, you get around the filters. Oh, that's how you get around the filters. I, I, I got to confess, I've been having this relationship with this guy at work. I'm having an emotional affair. He listens to me and he's caring and, and my husband isn't. And so I've been, I've been interacting back and forth with him. What? I thought you guys like had open phones. How did you even do that? Well, if you use this app and you message with this app, it deletes it after you use it. Oh, I, I didn't know about that app. I gotta tell you, I, I've been cheating on my taxes and I've been, I've been, I've been unethical with it. Well, how, did, how does the IRS not caught up with you? They catch up with everybody. Well, if you do this and this and fill this line in this way, they never really know. Oh, I would've, I would've never known that. See, when I deal with your sin, I learn how to sin. And so Paul says, you restore, but you be careful because this whole thing is dangerous. And you're going to wind up being tempted too because now you know how to do something you didn't know how to do before. So you dive in, but you dive in and you're kind of on extra guard because Satan's going to want to use that in your own life. And then he says this, this is the outcome. You confess your sin. You who are mature, dive in. Be careful because you're going to learn how to sin. And the outcome is this, that you carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. When you sin and you confess it, the role of fellow believers is not to get you out of our lives so you don't contaminate us. The role of the fellow believer is to carry the burden with you that I get under that weight and I help you work through that sin. Now, let me tell you something about restoration. Restoration is messy. It is painful. 
It is disorganized and it is dangerous. And when I have to help you carry the burden, it's difficult. This is why. Because when you come to us or you come to your loved one and you say, hey, I've been doing this. I've been lying. I've been living a duplicitous life. I am not who you thought I was. When that bomb goes off, that bomb blows up in your face and the shrapnel hits me. So suddenly the person that's tasked and the group of people that are tasked with helping you carry a burden, we're also bloody and wounded and hurt. I'm processing the fact that you did this to your wife and you did this to our friendship. You did this to your boss and you did this to the people of God. So restoration is hard, it's painful, it's bloody, it's messy, it can be gross. These details come out, I don't even wanna know or think about it. And now I have a whole new set of temptations to carry because now I know how to do what you did. And God would look and say, right. You carry something that you did not cause and you are not responsible for. Do you know anybody else like that? Because Jesus, I didn't do anything to you, but I took your sins upon my shoulders. And when I take the sins of another upon my shoulders, the way that Christ took my sins upon his shoulders, I am fulfilling that law of Christ. I'm acting like Jesus. And it's bloody and it's messy and it does not go smoothly. And there's a bunch of broken people trying to help and love each other. But the body of Christ does that. Instead of getting the pain away from us, we lift the pain together. And it will never, you'll never wrap up every little detail. I just tell you from experience. But you can choose to forgive and you can choose to love and you can choose to move forward. And when I confess my sins, I can be healed, right? I don't have to be caught. I can confess and it alters my relationship with God. It alters my relationships with God's people and it moves it forward. Now, here's what's happening in your brain right now. I'm gonna read your mind, ready? If you're hiding a sin, this is what's happening in your brain. If you're living a duplicitous life, this is what's going on in your brain. I'm gonna read your mind. Here it is, ready? You're in a mental tug of war, in a spiritual tug of war right now. And what you're weighing is this. Is the confession worth the cost? Because I've lived this secret maybe most of my life and he doesn't know and she doesn't know and they don't know. And my life is going relatively smoothly. I get a little nervous when the phone rings. I get a little anxious when the coach or the teacher calls me to the office. But other than that, I am kind of feel like I'm accomplishing this. Is it worth me confessing something that I think nobody knows about? Is my sin really going to find me out? And that's the tug of war. I know what God wants me to do. But I may, and then we'll rationalize it. I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to hurt the kids. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to, I'll never get into this. If they found out I cheated my way through high school, I'll never get into that college. What about my future? This stuff all goes away. Who cares about high school anyways? All that kicks in. 
And if you're a follower of Christ, your sin nature is at war with the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is saying, don't you want to be free? Wouldn't it be great to just look people in the eye and have nothing to hide? Wouldn't it be great to be free of this shame and this guilt? Wouldn't it be great to not be living a duplicitous life? Isn't that what you want? Because that's what I want to give you. And we go into a tug of war with each other. And guys, one of the biggest parts of this, in order to kind of motivate me to confess and to break out of these cycles, even though they're familiar to me, it is the Bible would say this, what I do is I set my hope in freedom. I set my hope in Christ. And what Christ came to do when he died on the cross for me, he paid for and defeated sin. I love what Romans chapter six says. Listen to this powerful, powerful part of the Bible. Chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those, he's talking about followers of Jesus. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is a powerful passage. I died spiritually to myself. My sin, my old nature died when I accepted Christ as my savior. It was buried. And for many of us, when we think about the power of God in our lives, that's where the conversation stops. Yeehaw, I'm not going to hell anymore. And Jesus' death on the cross provided freedom from hell through the forgiveness that he offers. Christ looks at us and says, I don't want you to live in my burial. I want you to live in my resurrection. You remember I got up? I came to give you life, Jesus says, but I came to give you life to the fullest or life abundantly. And that does not mean that I came to make you rich and I came to make you healthy. That's the TV nonsense that you hear. Life abundantly means this. I came to give you a life of freedom, a life of mercy, a life of no shame, a life of no condemnation. I came to give you a life that is tied to my resurrection, not just a life that's tied to my death. You don't just die to sin, you're resurrected to this life that Jesus wants to give you. He goes on, verse six, for we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Look at this, it's huge. For sin 
shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. God says, listen, what sin does is it masters you. Another part of the Bible says you're enslaved to it. It defines and directs your life. It defines your thinking. It defines your actions. It defines your motives. When Jesus died, he defeated sin. And when I accept Christ as my savior and I receive the salvation that he gives me, and at that moment I'm filled with the Holy Spirit of God, sin is defeated in my life. And Paul is saying, listen, sin shall no longer be your master. The only way for me to invite sin into my life is to invite it and to hide it. And as a Christian, the sin doesn't have power over me because of Christ in me. When I allow sin to have power over me, it's because I've allowed it. I'm choosing to live in a cell that's unlocked. I'm choosing to stay in a prison that the gates have been opened to. I'm choosing to be uh, confined by shackles that are not latched. I'll feel like, I can't tell anybody this, And God would say, you could totally confess this. You can be free. You're living as a slave to something that doesn't have the power to enslave you anymore. The reason that sin is reigning in you is because you've kept it there. You're not bumping into it. It's not a temptation that flared up. It's not a moment of weakness. It's a familiar secret that I hide and nurture and turn to and protect. And a tug of war, if this comes out, then God would say, but if it doesn't, then People blow their lives up with sin. You're that guy. It's going to blow up. And if we confess it, we alter our relationship with God and the relationship with the people around us. God wants you to be free, free from your secrets free from your addictions, free from your generational dysfunction, free from sin. And he has provided the freedom. It's defeated. The cell's unlocked. The gates are open. And it's, it's only by our will that we would continue to live there. I think the way to chew on this is to ask some of these questions, right? The first question is an obvious one. Is there a hidden secret sin in your life that needs to be confessed, right? That you know and you look back, that's why I'm never content with my husband. That's why I'm never satisfied with my wife. That's why my parents always look at me like they don't trust. There's a thousand blanks you fill in your own. 
Is there a secret sin, a willful sin in your life that needs to be confessed? Here's another question I think comes out of this. When you're looking at the scripture, are you getting tired from bearing someone else's sin, bearing their burdens? Guys, for some of us, that's exhausting. It really is. And, and, it, and it just drains you out. And, and what happens is this, someone has sinned against you. You didn't do anything. They sinned against you. They asked for your forgiveness. You've given it. You want to restore them. And it's exhausting to restore them. And every time this happens, and every time that happens, and every time this is not there, you look and say, your sin caused my life to change this way. Your sin caused these ramifications. I didn't do anything to you. And what happens is you have to forgive that person again and again and again. Forgiveness is not an event, it's a habit. And when I have to forgive you again and again and again, I get, I get tired of it. I, I'm just being honest with you, I get tired of it. I get tired of bearing other people's burdens. I, I sit there and I think, how did I wind up the bad guy? What did I do? Right, you ever feel like that? How did I wind up the bad guy? You're the one that blew your life up and I'm the one that can't restore you properly. I, it just, it's exhausting. And I wanna throw my hands up and I wanna harden my heart sometimes and I wanna just leave you to yourself. And I have to be reminded that my Savior does this for me. You know, Jesus, how did I wind up the bad guy? So I have to humble myself and I have to ask for courage. I have to be encouraged by God and encouraged by God's people and empowered by God's spirit because bearing sin becomes a heavy weight. Even when I want to do it, it's difficult. So some of you are there, when you think about secret sin, you're not thinking about your own, you're thinking about the one that was done to you. And God would look and say, you're the spiritual one. Guard yourself and, and I'll help you do this, right? That's why, that's why reconciliation, guys, and restoration, it should be done as a team, Okay, so even very personal, very deep sins, you don't have to announce them, you know, on Twitter, but get a team of Christ followers around you because that's what I found, that when my shoulder's tired, somebody else will come along and get under that for a while, right? Confess your sin, bear the burden. Here's the last thing. We all need to guard against temptation, careful lest you're tempted. Guys, listen. That story I told you, I'm 100% sure that when that man took his wedding vows, he never intended on cheating on his wife. When he said that he'd be faithful to her his whole life, he meant it. I'm 100% sure when he responded to God's calling to go into ministry, that he did that because he loved the Lord, he loved people, and he wanted to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I actually believe his intentions were proper. What happened to him? Just a little bit of sin, a little bit of porn, a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-righteousness, a little bit of selfishness, and it festers. 
If you think that you are above being that guy, then you're probably on the verge of being that guy. If you think that all this stuff is old-fashioned, Jeff, it's 2018. I, you, you have to have lunch with, with women that aren't your wife alone, or you can't even do business. Anymore. Jeff, it's 2018. You got, it's the marketplace, Jeff. You got to take long trips with men that aren't your husband and stay overnight at different places, just the two. You have to. You're crazy if you think that that's going to work. Watch the news. In the last two, three weeks, there's two or three major Christian leaders who have fallen. One of them's crazy. The other one's these are godly men who God used in great, great ways. And you know what happened to them? They didn't harden their hearts. They didn't decide to be a jerk. They didn't get all greedy for money. They weren't fakes. You know what happened to them? They let their guard down. They thought they were above temptation. You're foolish. Nobody is above temptation. And when we don't protect our marriages and we don't protect our trust and we don't protect the name of Jesus, if you think you can overcome sin, you've lost your mind. The son of God had to die to overcome sin. You're not gonna be able to manage it. So we have to recognize the severity of what we're dealing with. If we're hiding it, it's going to kill you. It's going to steal from you. It's going to destroy you. If you're tired, there's a God who will empower you and help you. And if you think you're above it, you're actually on the precipice of dying, diving into it. Be on guard, right? Jesus, help us with all of this. I hate this stuff, God. I hate it in my life. I hate it. It does to people that I love. I can't even imagine how much you hate it. I can't imagine what it does to your heart. He gave your son and... We just do what we want. I just can't even imagine. So God, help us. Help us. Give us the courage to confess. Give us the strength to bear. Give us the wisdom to be on guard. Help us. God, thank you for your grace and all of it. And if you didn't love us, you weren't quick with mercy and grace and forgiveness. Oh, my. So thank you, God, that that is your response to us. Even when we're walking away from you, you're waiting for us. So thank you for it. And help us, God, to take hold of that hand that reaches out to save. Stir in our hearts even now in these moments.
Lead us where you want us and need us to be. Thank you, Jesus.